you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We will be looking at verses 5 through 38. Luke 21, 5 through 38. Let's pray. Father, I ask for a spirit of teaching, of clear speaking, and of clear hearing these words that Your Son spoke on His last week of mortality on the Mount of Olives. To the glory of His name. Amen. We finally arrived at a passage that is undoubtedly one of the most controversial and complex portions in all the Bible. Just because Christians, genuine Christians, come down with different interpretations of its meaning, and they can't both be right, they can both be wrong if they're in contradiction to one another, but just because that is a reality is no reason to ignore this passage or to ignore eschatology in general. And I want to make a couple just preface statements. In eschatology, differing with one another as Christians on the particulars about the end time is no reason to fall out of fellowship with other believers. The one thing that is central concerning eschatology, meaning the study of the end time, is this. Jesus, who died and rose and ascended, is coming back one day to raise from the dead all who are His and usher in eternal glory. But all the particulars of that, we will not consider a grounds for disfellowship. And so, this morning as we deal with this passage, what you're going to hear is my understanding of the passage. You are not bound to buy it. What I mean by that, especially as a member of this church, we purposefully do not put in a particular narrow view of the last things to exclude others from becoming members of this church. In other words, you are bound to believe in the second coming of Christ. If, if you're a member, because you signed the covenant, in which means I'm agreeing with the statement of faith. You're bound to believe in the Holy Trinity, in justification by faith alone, in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But, you're not bound to buy what I will say about this text. I hope you do, because I think it's true. I never assume that all genuine Christians will agree on whether there will be an Antichrist. And if it is a particular person, what is it that he will actually do? We will never agree on the nature or the timing of the rapture. Or is there really a 1,000 year period of time called the millennium? And when will that be? Or what is the role of Israel in the end time? But we must agree that Jesus came, died, rose, ascended, and in that physical slash spiritual resurrected body will return to earth in judgment and in salvation. Okay. Now, so if you're at that text, debated, but I think it's worth it. I want to read Jesus' whole speech. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Because of Matthew and Mark, let us know it's on the Mount of Olives. Chapter 21 of Luke, starting with verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, 
The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And He said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in My name saying, I am He, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then He said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You'll gain your lives. But, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. And He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the Kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word. In hindsight... We talk about having 2020 vision. So what I want to do first is I want to paint a picture. It's going to give you a clue of how I read at least up to verse 24 of this text. Dates are important. 
July 4th, 1776. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. They are markers of utter significance for us Americans. Here's another huge day in the history of the world and for Israel and for the Christian church. August, A.D. 70. 37 years after Jesus delivered this speech on the Mount of Olives, an event occurred in Jerusalem that would forever change the course of human history and of Israel and the history of the church. At the time of the Olivet Discourse, Israel and their land that Jesus is preaching, and we call we call Israel, later called Palestine, had been by this time occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire for 90 years. When you push that up to AD 70, it'll be about 130 years. And during that whole time, there were periodic uprisings of Jewish sects against Romans, Rome's dominance over them. And it reached its climax in A.D. 66. Okay, just to give you a little picture first. All that you read in the book of Acts, where Luke ends with Paul in Rome, that is a, up to about the year 59. Six, seven years before this. Okay. Luke's Gospel was probably finished a couple years before A.D. 66. Okay, so what happened in AD 66 is that there had been uprising after uprising with the Jews and the land and political unrest, so that Rome finally sent not just the soldiers and you would normally have your garrison, they sent their armies there and subjugated the land of Judea and the different towns and in Jerusalem to try to bring order. And it took about a year under the general Vespasian. And then he and his armies had to leave because of civil war in Rome and they left. And that left a big vacuum in the Jewish homeland. And there were warring tribes or sects vying for power of townships and in Jerusalem and of the temple. It became really bad. And so a year later, Rome sent their armies back under the general Titus. And eventually, the armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem, cut off all food and water supplies. Months are going by, and by the time it was over, they leveled Jerusalem. They burned to get all the gold out of the temple on the walls of these big stones and threw them over. The temple was flattened to the ground and over one million people were slaughtered. Okay. Right, now with that picture of what happened in the first century, let's go back 37 years to Luke chapter 21. A few days before this, Jesus entered Jerusalem and we saw that He entered the temple grounds and turned over tables. Not to cleanse the temple. Okay, it's all nice. No. It was an act of judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple, which was a preview of what was going to happen in A.D. 70. In other words, just as God used the pagan Babylonians in 586 B.C. to bring judgment upon Jerusalem and upon the temple and upon His people for their apostasy, so He will use the pagan Romans in AD 70 as His judgment for apostasy and the rejection of the Messiah. Okay, so now here we are, verse 5. They're walking out of the temple grounds. Remember the temple 
is huge. We don't just mean the main temple building where the inner sanctuary is, but the entire temple with its courtyards and numerous buildings is one-fourth the size of Jerusalem during that day. It is one of the most impressive man-made structures on planet Earth at this time. Verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, or, or Mark in chapter Mark 13 says it this way, And as He came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Jesus, or look, Teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Okay. Then Jesus responded in verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He just said, this huge Herodian Herod built temple and temple complex and courtyards will be absolutely flattened. His disciples are stunned. Here's something I don't. I just think it's going on in the background. This is not like a little church building coming down. This massive structure. You've got stones that are 30 feet long, 30 feet high. This thing's coming down? To them it must be, okay, that must be the end of the world then. How else is it going to come down? And so they go outside as was his habit during this last week. where They didn't sleep in Jerusalem. They went outside the gates right across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. If you look at good Bible maps, they can see from the Mount of Olives Right there, because the temple comes all the way up to the wall of Jerusalem there, and they can look at the temple. And Jesus is going to answer two questions that they asked. When and what? When will this happen? Verse 7. And what will be the sign that it's about to happen? That's the Olivet Discourse. It's in Matthew 24, and it's also in Mark 13. Now, in interpreting what we call the Olivet Discourse, Christians fall into different camps. I'm not going to give all the different variations. I'm going to give you the big, wide picture. Okay? There are those who believe that everything in this speech of Jesus is, even today, still future. That none of it has anything to do with what took place in the past or in the first century. None of it's happened yet. It all has to do with what will take place with the future temple that is not yet built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. These are, we can call them, futurists. There's also a school of interpretation that says no. In fact, everything in the Olivet Discourse has already happened in the past. It was all completed by A.D. 70. These are called preterist from the Latin word that means past. They're past. Yes, it's already happened. And of course... As a good evangelical, you know over the last hundred years the loudest voices have been those of the futurists. You know, I've been a Christian for 32 years now. and You hear it. Did you hear? There are plans to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. It's going to happen. The Lord's coming is near. This is why there have been so many of us evangelicals extremely interested in current events. The events surrounding the world and particularly the Middle East. This is why in 1948, when something that is mind-boggling, the state of Israel, after 2,000 years, once again becomes a sovereign nation in 1948. 
And then in 1967, when they were attacked, and by the end of the war, they recaptured Jerusalem. And this produced a frenzy of eschatological speculation within the conservative evangelical church world. When I was in Bible college, I remember in 1988, there was a book out called or titled 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And they had to change the title the next year. And I'm pretty sure they did. Remember that, search? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so many of you know, my kids do, about three blocks from my house, we had a big billboard two years ago sitting there for months by Harold Camping's ministry. Declare, I can't remember which October date, but it was October something. That day, the end of the world is coming. There's a book out now, Why Jesus is Coming Back Soon. Eight compelling reasons. Five of them are drawn from the Olivet Discourse. Most people, most of us, evangelicals who don't study eschatology, we actually, almost by default, assume a futurist position because of the late great planet Earth back in the early 70s or the Left Behind series of novels and movies. Just remember what I said at the beginning of this sermon. You have to buy it and tell you where I'm at. I don't think any of the earthquakes over the last six years, hundreds of thousands killed in them. I don't think any of the tsunamis, Indonesian tsunami or the Japan tsunami, or the earthquakes here in America, I mean, the, earthquake, the tornadoes that have just went right through cities in our country over the last couple of years tell us anything about when Jesus is coming back. Jesus tells us here, when you hear of such things, of earthquakes and catastrophes and wars, don't be alarmed. Don't get upset. Don't wring your hands. This is routine stuff in this age. Not signs. Oh, and then, if He is meaning between the time He spoke, His resurrection, His ascension, in AD 70 when the temple falls, then He means during this time these will go on in their routine. Don't look for the temple to go down in the next two weeks or three months or a year. They're not signs. Look at verses 8-11. to See that you are not led astray. For many will come in My name saying, I am He. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Alright, so here, here's the large picture of what I think is going on in the Olivet Discourse. So if you're looking down at your Bible Bible, this is one where a paper Bible is really good. You can see the whole thing. Sorry, guys. So you look down there. I think, it, at least at this point, we're going to come back here next week. But from verse 5, at least now, through verse 24, what Jesus prophesied there has already taken place between A.D. 30, 33, and A.D. 70. See how he ends verse 24? They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. 
So I'm saying, up to that verse in the Olivet Discourse, it was all fulfilled by A.D. 70. So I am a partial, at least, preterist path. Now, let me just say something. There are what you call full-blown preterists that think that all prophecies in the New Testament have already been fulfilled. That's heresy. I am also a partial futurist. There are prophecies that I do not yet think have been fulfilled and they still are in the future. And most specifically, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, as we look at the text, how do we approach it? There's a tendency for many Christians today to do what we used to call newspaper theology. You know, okay, uh, let me see, internet headline theology. Where you look to the current events in the world, between nations, and particularly in the Middle East, and then you look through those events back to the first century and what Jesus says here in the Olivet Discourse and other passages of Scripture and try to interpret through that the meaning of the text. That's not the way to understand the intended meaning of biblical text. But we need to go back into the past, into the context, sit down by Peter, James, and John, and Matthew on the Mount of Olives and listen to Jesus say these words a few days before His crucifixion. And work your way forward. The questions posed by the disciples were specifically about the temple they're looking at. Not Solomon's temple. That was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. This is what we call the Herodian temple. You can see it from the Mount of Olives. When will this temple go down? That's the question. Not some supposed temple yet in the future that will one day be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I think all of the circumstances in verses 10 through 19 refer to exactly what transpired between Jesus' ascension and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. I think when he says this, he's speaking very directly to Peter, James, John, Matthew, others who may not even be his apostles, but disciples. Because what's going to transpire over the next 37 years? Like within a couple of years, James, the son of Zebedee, will be run through with a sword. They'll take, hey, this is cool, let's do this to Peter, and they will imprison him, and God will deliver him. There's a Pharisee out there named Saul who will get official, legal papers from the Jewish council to imprison Christians. I think Jesus is speaking very directly to them when He says, pick up verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for My namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your life. There were devastating earthquakes during this period. Colossae was one of them. 
One of the churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus speaks to was another. Wars, many more wars going on than we have right now today. Rome was fighting wars. False messiahs were abundant in the first century. So it was very personal when Jesus spoke to them. Like verses 8 and 9. See that you are not led astray, guys. For many will come in My name saying, I am He. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. And what's so strange, I think, in our day is that many get all alarmed at the next catastrophe. The end of the world is coming. Jesus is coming back. Look at this. This has been going on for 2,000 years. These things. But Jesus says this is just routine stuff. Do not be terrified, for those things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Or this is how Mark has it in Mark 13. Many will come in My name saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, by that phrase, but the end is not yet, He's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem that He just prophesied about. So here's the flow of what I've, what I've said so far. Jesus, look at this temple. It is amazing. It's going to be utterly destroyed and flattened. When, Jesus, and what will be the signs? Let me tell you what aren't the signs. Earthquakes and tumults and wars and rumors of wars and people saying, the Messiah is out here or the end is at hand. Don't listen to them. Those are not the signs. That's what we've seen so far. Now, I gotta, before we move on, let me add one other thing here because Luke does not have what both Matthew and Mark have that Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse and it needs to be brought up. Because during this period that I'm saying He's referring to A.D. 33 to A.D. 70, Jesus said this about that period. And this Gospel of the Kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And many take that statement to refer to something that is still, even today, yet future. Hasn't happened yet. And, and during the first century, surely the whole world has not heard the Gospel of Jesus. So, what of it? The Word... It's translated the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the whole world before the end is the word oikumene. This word was commonly used in the first century to refer to the inhabited earth. Typically what they mean is the Roman Empire and maybe a few lands they're familiar with beyond. It was never used in its context, in the first century, in the ancient world, it was never used to refer to the entire globe as we know it. They had no concept of a global perspective of the whole world as we do today. In other words, we must step back into their context of the first century and ask, how did they view oikumene, this, this term, the whole world? And the answer is, 
this vast Roman Empire in some lands they're familiar with beyond. Now, let me just try to show you that. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, earlier on in this book, Luke says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It's the word oikumene. What did he mean? All the world. Did he mean the people that were living right here in California? Or in Australia? Or New Zealand? Or South America? Of course not. That's not what they're talking about. It was the people that they've subjugated. All these different nations and tongues and tribes under the Roman Empire. That's how Luke means the word oikumene. Or in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, we read, And one of them, in the early church, the prophet, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Oikumene. Okay, if we could prove scientifically that when he said that in the first century, in whatever particular year that was, there was no famine over here in North America, or in China, or in South Africa, would he be wrong? The answer is no. Because all interpretation is about what did he mean? He didn't mean all the world in the sense of the entire globe. He meant his entire big region that they're familiar with back there in the Middle East, maybe even stretching to Greece. That's what he meant. So, chapter 24 of Acts, we read, For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Does he mean the entire globe? Obviously not. So he doesn't mean the whole world in that sense. Every tribe, every peoples, every group that we would find out actually exists 1,500 years later. It's not what he's talking about. When Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. To all nations. That means Gentiles. And so Jesus, I think, is simply saying that the Gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts. The Roman Empire. Uh, to the pagan Gentile nations. All of that is going to happen before the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. Did all that happen? Yes. And I, think that's, I think that's Luke's argument in the book of Acts. That's how he sets up the book of Acts that goes to about A.D. 60. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. He shows the, the evangelism in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And then God calls Paul and Jesus says, You are my apostle to the Gentiles. And he spreads it for decades throughout the uttermost parts. That's the New Testament language. And just listen to how Paul himself wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 6, Paul says this, The Gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, he didn't mean California by whole world. Or in verse 23 of Colossians 1, he says, in Believer, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. No missionary had gone to Hawaii yet, or Alaska, or Russia, or any South American 
tribes. How can Paul said the Gospel has been preached under all creation under heaven? Because this is from Paul's first century perspective. The whole known Roman Empire. That's why he writes to the Romans, whom he hasn't even visited them yet. He hasn't been to Rome as a Christian yet. And when he says in chapter 1, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Context. So, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is foretelling that the Gospel will be preached to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles and Gentile lands through missionary work. And that will happen before the end of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. So that's what he says up to this point. Now, if you're looking down, look at verse 20. Notice a big transition in what he says. He said all that. These are not signs. Relax. That's what he said so far. But, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city of Jerusalem depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter Jerusalem For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, being horrible for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so now he says to his guys, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by Roman armies, flee. Get out of town fast. So again, let's get the flow. Jesus, when is this temple coming down? What are the signs of its destruction? Answer, don't think the signs are earthquakes and persecutions and wars and death of Christians or believers and famines. That any of that's a sign. But, there is a sign. And when you see it, If you guys are alive here, and some of you will be, when you see it, flee Jerusalem. The sign is when you see the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. Once that happens, it's coming. It's very short before Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is leveled to the ground. So when you see the armies of Rome surround Jerusalem, Run. That's what verse 20 means. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, Mark and Matthew call that the abomination of desolation. Now, abomination means it's a sacrilege. And from February... A.D. 70, Titus surrounded the entire city of Jerusalem with his armies. Cut off food from entering. Cut off water supplies. A few months later, by April, it got really bad. And eventually, when he entered the temple grounds, he sacrificed to pagan gods on purpose against the Jews in their temple and it was an abomination. It's the abomination of the destruction or the desolation that will 
be happening. And then by August, the temple was utterly flattened. The Jewish historian Josephus, many of you know his name, you ought to. He's one of the most important historians of the first century A.D. He's born a Jew, works very closely though with the Roman Empire. He was an eyewitness to all of this. He actually, Titus took Josephus and made him an emissary to go negotiate with the Jewish leadership. To Guys, just stop. Say you want peace. Let them come in. Josephus was used that way. I think he got an arrow in the shoulder for it. Well, Josephus even tells us that the Christian Jews, most of them totally escaped. They took Jesus' words to heart. One more thing. What about the Great Tribulation? Verse 23. There will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Or, or Mark 13.19, it said this way, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. This is what I think that means. It refers to exactly what was happening in AD 70 in Jerusalem. Particularly from April to August. Just go home and pick up an encyclopedia on the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and just read the whole thing. It is horrendous. Thieves. Zealots. Murderers during that whole period from 66 to 70, flocked to the city of Jerusalem. On one day during the siege, 12,000 Jewish leader types were tortured by Rome. Titus, his armies. And their throats slit. So many bodies piling up They had to stop even trying to bury them, but get them outside and dump them through a broken wall or over the wall of the city. When Jews would try to sneak out during the dark at night to find some type of sustenance and food for themselves and for their families or water, the Roman armies were waiting. On average, during these few months, Rome was crucifying 500 people a day. And by the end, 1.1 million people were slaughtered. Mostly Jews. Only one-tenth were left alive and they were taken captive and sold into slavery. That's the great tribulation. Except you ask, well, wait a minute. What about the Nazi holocaust? What about 60 million under Mao in communism? Or 30 million under Stalin? Or even Pol Pot in a period of two years, at least one million butchered and slaughtered? Really? Was this the worst that's ever happened? It's not the point. And I don't have time to read you the text. If you want, I'll give them to you later or at home group. This is Old Testament speak. Never has it happened before and never will it again. I can show you it throughout the Old Testament on different occasions. Because it's not saying literally it can't get any worse in any other situation. It's Old Testament speak for it will be really bad. Okay. That's as far as we're going to go. In this text this morning, we'll come back next week. We're only going to verse 24. All that's said so far, I am solidly persuaded, referred to what happened between A.D. 33 and A.D. 70. And it's been fulfilled. Now, as we close, I want to ask this question. How are we today to react to the Olivet Discourse? First, be 
very wary of the next book or the next podcast about the Olivet Discourse proclaiming the Lord is coming back. Here's the signs. It's going to be at least within the next decade. Within the next three years. Or as we saw with Harold Camping, it will be in October of 2011. Take it with a grain of salt. No one knows. It may be tomorrow. We should want to grow to where we yearn with Paul, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It may be 500 years from now. Or a thousand years from now. But we'll see next week at the end of this, one thing is certainly applicable to every believer. Stay awake. Be vigilant. Live before the presence of God. Before you decide that next act, think, would I do this if Jesus were to come back in the next 22 hours? Secondly, is this. A.D. 70 should hit us like a ton of bricks into sobriety. This is for Christians. God's judgment upon Jerusalem and upon the temple came to pass. And it was horrific. So when you ever hear popular pastors preach against or just totally leave out the truth of God's eternal judgment which is coming. Or they got a big following on an internet and church of a few thousand and they write a book, Love Wins, where the contention is there is really no eternal judgment. Flee such foolishness. The righteous Judgment of the Holy God is real. It was real in A.D. 70. When Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple came to pass. This is the connection. And thus it will be real on a much greater and universal scale when the Lord Jesus Himself descends from heaven to bring salvation to those who are His and judgment upon the world. This is how it should hit us. God does not ignore idolatry. His patience as we see throughout the Old Testament, His patience is long-suffering. But it's not forever. He has given to us and to the world historical metaphors. Oh, His patience before the flood of Noah. But finally, build the boat. I'm going to destroy him. Oh, his patience with his chosen people in the land of Israel for hundreds of years. Warning, 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 don't turn away. Finally, the Babylonian captivity of 586 B.C. And He gave us the historical metaphor of A.D. 70. God saves sinners from idolatry. But the unsaved, He will not turn His back on them and their wickedness like 
provoked his anger and wrath in the first century with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He will not withhold that forever. And he will not turn his back on the wicked, on those who hear the mercy of Jesus and stiff arm it. Say, not for me, I want to live my way. This is how Paul says it in Second Thessalonians 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His mind. And so the Olivet Discourse is not just a history lesson. It's a preview of the future. What God did locally on those who rejected His Son, He will do globally to those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. This is the good news of the Gospel. This is why the words of John 3.16 are so precious to any of us older ones or any teenagers or younger in here. We're meant to see in our mind's eye the historical destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in AD 70. And hear the words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. If you haven't embraced the Savior from your sin and coming judgment, it's absolutely free. Here's the plea of Christ and of the Gospel of Jesus. Embrace with your heart. Believe this substitutionary sacrifice for your sin whom God proved by raising Him from the dead. And you will be forever delivered from what your sin deserved and delivered into the joy of fellowship with Almighty God in Jesus Christ forever. Come on up. Hmm. Lord, it is my prayer that You continue to do what I'm so confident You are doing in hearts right now by the work of Your Spirit in the hearing of the Gospel, the hearing of Your Word. It is amazing that any of us we cling to, to Your words here in the Olivet Discourse. And we look and we see, oh, what mercy. <laughs> what mercy that You have granted my heart to grab hold and embrace you. I pray that's even happening now. I pray it's happening for those of us who are yours and who are in need of repentance. 
point of rejuvenation by your spirit of a first love. Continue to do that now. Continue to do it as we see.